Hi, this is Anton Fig. You're listening to Follow Your Dream Podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm pleased to tell you that my Follow Your Dream Handbook is now out and available. The handbook is a combination memoir of my musical journey and a step-by-step how-to book. Plus, it's got a whole bunch of very cool photos of my life and my career. I wrote the handbook as an extension of this podcast to help everyone to pursue and succeed at their dream, whatever it may be. The reviews have been just spectacular. It's been called inspiring, extremely helpful, highly readable, the guiding light, and a true literary treasure. So pick up the Follow Your Dream handbook today. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. My guest today is my friend and former colleague and mentor, Stanley Sagan. Stanley is from South Africa, and he is both a practicing physician and a professional jazz pianist. I first met Stanley in 1971. I took bass lessons for a few months from Jimmy Garrison, who was John Coltrane's bassist. And I then decided that I was going to return to college in Boston. And Jimmy gave me one person to call, Stanley Sagoff. I got to find out why that was, by the way. Stanley immediately invited me over to his Beacon Hill apartment, and we began to jam. He was training to be a jazz musician at the New England Conservatory, and I was your basic rock musician. But this was the era of jazz rock fusion. So somehow we managed to meet in the middle and we got along just fine musically. For the next several years, our band named Sagoff, I wonder where we got that name, which included, by the way, Anton Fig on drums. Later, he was David Letterman's drummer for 29 years. We played all over the Boston area. From Lenny's on the Turnpike, where one night we backed up a very drunk Sonny Stitt, to the Hatch Shell on the Charles River, to one of the major theaters in town where we opened for Gary Burton, to WBUR-FM where we did some recordings on the air, to a gig with the Brubeck Brothers. We did it all. The only thing we didn't do, which still bugs me, is release an album of all of our music. One of my few regrets. Anyway, Stanley kept up his dual careers for many years, and he continues to perform with his band, Remembering the Future. My featured song in this episode, which you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear at the end as well, is my song called Cakewalk for Deborah, which was the first song that I wrote, and I wrote it during my time with Stanley. But I didn't get to record it until 1994 when I did my first solo album. And guess what? I had Anton Fig 
playing on the drums on that recording. So, Stanley Sagov, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you. Well, that was interesting to hear that a few of those things, and you know, it's good to hear it. Yeah, I had to dig back into my memory bank for some of those things. But do you remember we played at all those clubs that yeah. were happening in Boston at the time? Yeah, I loved it. It was great. It really was. I, I assume that Lenny's on the Turnpike is long gone, but that was like the club, if if I remember. We played there. We also played at Sandy's, and I think that the I think the Sunny Strip thing was it. But they were both in the North Shore, right? Yeah, that was very, that was a very interesting uh, a gig with Sunny Strip. Yeah, and there was a club in downtown Boston that we played at called Debbie's. That I remember because my girlfriend was named Debbie. So how could I forget that? Yeah, a lot of things. It was a great time musically, wasn't it? Yes, it, it felt open. It felt very experimental, and it felt alive. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I want to go back a little bit. You came over here from South Africa. And why don't you tell the whole story about how you got here and why you came to the United States? You were already in medical school, or maybe you were a practicing physician even in South Africa, weren't you? So I'm going to slant this towards the musical side of things rather than the medical side, because as you know, Bob, I could go on and on. But that's what makes you interesting, okay? You had these dual careers. Sure. And by the way, you messed me up completely, which I'm going to tell you about in a little while. But talk about both of them. Okay. So growing up in South Africa as a, a white South African of Jewish parents, family came from East Europe, fleeing pogroms and later on fleeing, you know, the, the Holocaust uh, so I grew up with a, a sense of social justice being important. But I was living in a country that was a segregated country in which racism, very analogous to the fears that Jews had, was happening to people of color. And that disjunction, that cognitive dissonance, is an important part of the story, both in medicine and in music for me. And... I had doctors in my family, so I had some role models, and I was drawn to, to, to social justice and to serving people. And I also had this other quite different side that's whimsical and creative and dreamy and not scientific and not that, that sort of finding, seeking happiness and joy in a different domain. Left brain and right brain. Well, yeah, you know, it's it, of course everything has both things in it because you need to be precise and pay attention, and you know the, the details matter in both in everything. Everything is sort of the, the longer I've lived, the more similar they seem, in fact. But there are these two streams in terms of behaviors and what what the outer world would see, and and for a jazz musician. There are not many places to go in the world that speak English that have the kind of energy and inspirational opportunities. America is it. And we all, interestingly, in terms of the background that I just alluded to, we thought of America jazz as the music of an integrated country because you had this African wellspring of idiom and creativity and communal spirit and, 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 and rhythmic complexity. 
and and the kind of scales, all the things, the blue scales and so on that come from Africa, and the notes in between the cracks and so on, as well as the sonority and the sense of also being part of a, a way of accessing the body. It, it, you know, the jazz music has a lot to do with how your body responds to music. It's highlighted in, in, in what, what makes it so powerful. And then you had all of these other Western traditions come together in America. So it, it's the place to go. So that was big motivation to come. And I came after I already had graduated from medical school. And I worked in New York as a doctor at Bellevue and New York Hospital and a few other places for several years and played a great deal of music in, in, in New York with my heroes, including Jimmy Garrison. And if you want to talk about that story, do you want to do that now? Sure. So that's how you met him. Yes. So I, I played with him and, uh, and with Elvin Jones and with um, an incredible saxophone player. It'll come to me in a moment. Um, at Slugs and at the Vanguard and at, you know, at the Gate and so on. I was just very lucky and had those opportunities. And I played Jimmy... I mean, literally every day for three or four months, we got to know each other really well. And so that's why he, you know, that's, we were close. And I went with him to Coltrane's house. I mean, Coltrane had already died, but played there with Archie Shep and Alice Coltrane on harp and um, Paul, it was just really a wonderful opportunity. Sounds like that. You know, when I took lessons with Jimmy, he was sober and really in good shape. He was living on the Upper West Side. I think he had a new wife. He had a young Roberta, son Roberta was at that time. Yeah. And the saddest thing is that after I went back to Boston, after we started playing together, he and Elvin Jones came through Boston. Now, this was months later, but not years later. And it was obvious because I went to see him that he was totally strung out at that moment again. And he didn't last much longer than that. So he was very ashamed of it. Also, he 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 hid it. You know, he was he was really really bothered by his inability to sustain. Well, I feel like I got him in a moment of lucidity. Yeah, and uh, I was very fortunate about that because you know it didn't last that long. But th that's really the downside of so many jazz artists, so many greats that got waylaid by drugs and so many other bad things in life and it, it's it's just terrible when you think back and you look at the jazz pantheon and you say how many people did we lose because of that you know it's it's a mixed thing though because the same sensitivity that made those people so prodigiously good at what they did and so innovative and so, I mean, truly virtuosic and artistic attainment of the highest level. And yet they lived in a country where they really struggled for the most part in terms of black, of course, because of racism, but even just the status of being a jazz musician, period. Um, and... I think that's got to be factored in that in some way the music actually reflects some of the nirvana that people were seeking or that sort of reduction in pain or harm, you know, to, to their self, to their sense of self, to sense of permission to be, you know, I think that's in there, that struggle. I'm sure you're correct about that. Okay, so you're in you're in Boston. You're at the New England Conservatory. You you chose the conservatory as opposed to Berkeley. Just 
I'd be interested. Why? Why was that? Sure. I went. To, I always. I, I played what you know with certain facility, but I wasn't grounded like the musicians I was playing with, and I wanted to go back to school and really learn because I played just by ear as a street musician. I was a guitar player and a you know, piano player, but not with no no schooling. I, I never took it as a kid. And I, I did things with facility, but very ergonomically, you know, inefficient. And Gunther Schuller was beginning to, to be, head the conservatory, so I knew the jazz program would have a good, a, you know, important place in that school. And it's the oldest school in America. And I went to Berkeley also. But when Berkeley heard me play and heard, saw the recommendations I had from various people, from people I've been playing with in the city of New York, they said, you should go to New England Conservatory because what you want, they will do better than we will do. I, I don't know if they would say it now, but that was their advice, actually. Interesting. And when I went and when I, at the conservatory, they sort of thought of me as a kind of a prodigy but a weird phenomenon because i was doing things so weirdly you know <laughs> you couldn't figure out how a human could get around that fast but play so awkwardly so they made me spend six months before they <laughs> accepted me with a piano teacher playing the hannon exercises scales turning your thumb oh and you know all of these things which i never did you know all that sort of stuff so I could play enough to do the piano classes and sight reading things and so on. You got a degree from New England Conservatory. I yeah. remember playing at um, your, your graduation ceremony, I think it was. Yeah. You had to do some kind of a concert. And uh, that was pretty interesting, of course. But I want to go back again. You had this dual life in the sense that you were a physician and you were a, an accomplished jazz musician. And the reason I focus on that is because I made a decision in my life right around the same time. I was trying to do music full time. It wasn't working for me. I had graduated with a degree in broadcasting and film. I got myself a job in the mailroom at the public television station in Boston. That was what my degree was was worth. And between uh, the the public television station and playing music at night, if I made $100 a week, it was a lot. And so I went off on a multi-year odyssey to try and make a living and at the same time play my music. And I didn't succeed very well with that, which became my whole story. You, on the other hand, kept with your medicine and you kept with your music. And I'd like you to talk about that because that's a remarkable combination. So in general, I think the plight you talk about, about choosing jazz music as a profession, maybe almost any music as a profession, is that the market is such that you have to travel to make a living, especially if you want to be in a group. Because as a solo musician, you could teach, you could play you know, advertising jingles, you could sort of Maybe as an artist, you might struggle unless you were a teacher in one place. But as a jazz musician or jazz-based musics in a band, you can't support it without traveling. And so that's, I, I don't know about you, but I just was too, uh, I could, I could not enjoy it. It just was exciting for a little bit of time, but it got old quickly for me. 
I loved the music and the camaraderie of the musicians to, with each other, but the, there was nothing to do after you finished playing late at night in these small towns. You sort of were in and out of places. It was kind of a college town. It was just... It's kind of a lonely existence. I agree with yeah, you. I, so I, I was too bourgeois to kind of... Couldn't enjoy that. And all of my heroes, whether they were Miles or my piano teacher, Jackie Byard from the conservatory, anybody, Max Roach, Sonny Rollins, people I knew and played with, this, uh, nobody ever graduated from that status if they wanted to have a band. If you were Duke Ellington, you had a tour. You, could, you couldn't earn a living in one city. Right. So, I mean, and, and now, as I know it from jazz musician colleagues of mine, they go to East Europe or Dubai or, you know, whatever. They can make a good living there. They come back and get the energy in New York or Boston or Detroit or whatever. And then they go make a living for, you know, for the next six months of the year where they can make some money. It's still a very, very hard life to yeah. be a professional musician. You know, we all think about the top 0.1% that are superstars and making money hand over fist and all of that. But like in almost every field, it, it's really that very tippy top of the, of the pyramid that enjoys that kind of status. Fortunately, the music has got nothing to do with that aspect of it itself. Playing it and hearing it and being with other people to make something beautiful and authentic in which everybody is respected and heard and elevated and plays something that they couldn't have done without the communication with the both the musicians and the audience and the ideas and the idioms and what were the shoulders of the people were standing on and rubbing shoulders with. All of that's got nothing to do with what you can make money with or any of that. And it, it's, that's what's kept me, you know, riveted and just obsessive about continuing to try to give myself the permission to practice when I'm practicing both medicine and music, and to play when I'm playing in the most, you know, engaged and committed way that I can to both enterprises when I'm serving people, whether I'm serving whoever's listening, including myself, when I'm expressing myself that way. But, you know, we have to recognize you and I uh, have been very fortunate to be able to make a living and to be able to play music on our own terms. Yeah. Because most people are not that fortunate. You know, the band that I have fronted for a number of years now, all the guys in the band are marvelous musicians. They really are. And they came to the United States from different countries. Okay. Venezuela, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Canada. They all came to the U.S. and to New York in order to make their mark. But it's a very difficult uh, life that they've chosen. You know, I, I describe them lovingly as almost little great white sharks. They have to keep eating. So they'll they'll play whatever gigs are offered because that's what they have to do in order to maintain a life cycle, a lifestyle, I should say. Nothing wrong with that. It's just you need to know going in that that's the likely outcome when you go into music or any of the creative arts, you know, and if you if you have the benefit like you did of being able to have a lifestyle and then do it on your own terms, that's a fortunate outcome. I would also say that it that, that in, may, in your case, as you indicated, that you also chose a path that included more than one thing. I think that the history of expression 
is much more usually what our story is in the history of all music, all dance, all you know, poetry, whatever. It came from people who were just part of a community. It wasn't made into a business or a celebrity thing. It, you know, it, it, it sort of evolved into that a few centuries ago, you know, with a romantic era about particular composers or people. People worked for the church or a prince before that. They weren't stars on their own. Right. They were functionaries, you know. <laughs> So this idea of the artist as a person and as a celebrity and like a commodity, a wage earner, yeah, it's a whole, it's yeah, a it's, very novel idea. Yeah. And it's not such a great idea either, but it you're right. Have, it's, <laughs> but it costs something else because it creates a scale where some people will do things that would never have happened otherwise, you know? Uh, listen, we've both been around a long time and we've seen a lot of things and it's so good to see that you're still playing and you're still smiling. Okay. I want to go into the second half of our interview because this is the fun part for me. I have told Stanley that I'd like to do with my musician guests, what I call a song fest. And what that means is that we sit and we choose a, a handful of songs that in this case, Stanley played on and, and likes and we're going to listen to a few of them and we're going to talk about them. And nobody else does this kind of stuff on podcasts. I want you to know. But this is one of the things that I love the best. So right now, what's starting underneath us is a song called Nkozi. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Poesy, yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about that song and about the performance? Sure. It was a song that was written in 1911 by a man named Enoch Santonga, who had no idea that this song, which is a kind of a hymn, would become the anthem of the African National Congress, which was the protest organization to emancipate South Africa from apartheid. And it is now the national anthem of South Africa. When I grew up, it was banned. You weren't allowed to play it or sing it mm. or show an image of Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for those many decades. So that's the song. And I did an arrangement of it after Mandela had been released and the new South Africa had been born. And we played it with my band, and I, I like this version of it a lot. So you literally were prohibited from playing it in public, I assume, even in private, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it would be uh, if someone overheard you or if your neighbor reported you. It's not. It was a banned uh, expression. You couldn't walk down the street and whistle the tune, huh? 
at your own peril. <laughs> and the band that's playing this, tell us a little bit about the band. Sure. So um, I haven't got the album in front of me, but it's Bob Moses on drums, and any jazz musician or drummer will know who Bob Moses is. I've been playing with him since the 70s. He's a pioneering musician, a master drummer. Um, I believe John Lockwood is on bass. He's from South Africa also. We grew up together. I played with him from the time we were teenagers. I'm almost 78 now, so that's a nice long time we've been playing together. And uh, Stan Strickland is on reeds, and he's. I've also been playing with him since the 70s. He's a national treasure. He's, he sings. He plays all the reeds. He's just a wonderful player. And I think it's Mike Pipeman on, on trumpet. I, 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 I'm not sure if he's on this album. You, you, you might know better than me. I, I got to stop you one second. Just tell you something, a little funny tidbit, which is you just mentioned your age, 78. Now, when we played together, I was around 20, 21, something like that. And I remember vividly when you turned 30, because I said to myself, how could I be playing with somebody that old? <laughs> Oh, wouldn't that be nice if we were back then, huh? Anyway, okay, let's go to the second song that we've got here in our song fest. This happens to be a song that you and I wrote together. Uh, it's called Miles Behind. And I think I came up with the idea for the song initially. And uh, I, I named it Miles Behind as kind of a play on words because Miles Davis had these albums like Miles Soars, Miles takes off, something like that. So I just said, let me do something funny like Miles Behind. time we did it it had kind of a rock beat and you wrote the uh, the melody that went over all of that you've changed it around over the years i give you my permission and my blessing for that <laughs> so why don't you talk a little bit about this recording of uh, miles behind so it it was an exciting time where the fusion between r&b feel and blues licks and 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 jazz sophistication and layering was exciting and um also synthesizers and electric instruments were being brought in in a different way you had one of the original synthesizers if yeah, i remember early early adopter yeah 
Now, was this, it wasn't a Moog synthesizer, was no, it? No, it was Electrocomp was the name. It was a, it was a, a Connecticut-based company. And it was sophisticated, but you know, to plug in things and couldn't stay in tune, it was hard to play. But but it was it felt expressive and it felt for a keyboard player, like you were adding control to the way the note could change over time, which is different than you can do when you're striking a key. Right. Um, anyway, I think both of us were enjoying that Miles would take a very small motif and then be able to make a whole 20 minutes of music right. from referring to that, just a little up, 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 and then you'd like come back to that every now and then, or expand, or stretch it, or do different things. And I, I, um, I, I wanted to do something that was angular and and had a had a kind of cadence that was slower and then faster, and then was kind of it would lead to something that would spring you to something else, and feel like it was always going somewhere, coming from and going to, not being in a place. And you, you were, and you would, the person with body would move because the tempo would be somewhat steady, but it would right. feel like it was being pulled. Because exactly. I wanted it to be a pulse, not a beat. I wanted it to shimmer, not, 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 not be struck and articulated. You know, what was interesting to me was that uh, it, it was really the combination of our two different worlds in that song, because I, I kind of came out with a, a beat that was a, you know, straight ahead kind of rock type of beat. Shuffle, was shuffle. a shuffle. Yes, I agree with that. And you added that kind of, a, I'll call it a jazz motif on top of it. And it, it just worked. It really was nice to have those two worlds kind of come together. Yeah. And, you know, you also remind me of this. I, we talked about this on another episode of the podcast. You know, Miles Davis, of course, was, uh, you know, at the top of the, 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 the charts, so to speak, in jazz. And back in that day, the promoters in different places like the Fillmore East used to put together bills that were remarkable combinations of artists. I remember the first time I saw Miles Davis live, he was the opening act for the who at the Fillmore East. I, I was there for seeing that, not that concert, but seeing him there. Too. Well, it was a great thing for everybody because anyone like myself that knew about the who was there for the who all of a sudden were introduced to Miles Davis. And this was in his bitches brew era. So he was at the forefront of fusion. We got to know what his music was at that time. And he got to introduce his music to a completely different audience than he had ever been to before. And that kind of bill doesn't exist anymore. You know, it, I've talked about this with different uh, guests of mine. Nowadays, everything has to be homogenous. You know, okay, you have to have the same artists filling up each slot on the bill, which I think is boring as can be. But Bobby, the reason I believe that why that happens so much in the kind of capitalism that we have here is because we measure everything by sales. Yes, you can have music that people would like and pay to attend to. But if they don't buy the product that's sponsoring it, it won't be supported. It's not about representing what people even would like or could be taught and educated to include what and what they like. It's are they going to buy the product that's paying for the performance to make up money? Well, you're right. That's that's the cynical but true underbelly of the whole thing. 
And you've got to, unless you recognize that subsidy is needed to make this thing, which is so nourishing. I, listen, I'm not naive. I don't think that art changes things directly. But th what it does do is it paints a picture. It tells a story. I said earlier on, what makes the music a refuge is that you're with other people making something together that you can't do on your own in the same way. And everybody knows that. It's delicate and powerful at the same time because it depends on just opening yourself to be responsive to what someone's doing in real time with an aspiration to make it coherent and communicative to the people who are listening to it and indicating and sending and feeling what we're putting out. That's the picture we're painting, that life could be like that. People could be listened to, respected, and given space to get in a context in which it's safe for them to feel how they're coming across and be lifted by doing that. Doesn't it sound good? <laughs> Sign it, me up. <laughs> exactly. And that's what music, when it's working, or any kind of communication does. I know. I, I just wish we had more adventurous, far-thinking people like Bill Graham that were controlling the live performances of music because he really was uh, thinking along the lines of what you're saying. This was yeah. not about how do I make more money out of this act versus the other act. And it'll come back. It'll, if you look at the, 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 the impetus to collaborate and connect and communicate about that has outlasted autocracy, extinctions, genocide, Holocaust, People do it even in countries where there's apartheid. In under Hitler's Germany, people were collaborating, communicating, sharing. In East Germany, where half the country was informing on the other half in the same family and telling each other they were informing each other, they were collaborating, loving, making love, fighting, connecting again. This stuff is more powerful than we like to um, give it credit for. The other stuff is also there. But the artistic expression, including music, is endured and remains pivotal, even though it in different in peaks and valleys of support. From, but you know that way. All right, I'm I'm all for it. Everything you just said. Let's go on to the third number that we've got in our song fest. This is a, a another South African number, I assume. It's called South Africa Jazz Curry. just kind of like there was a funky kind of thing that you were doing. Uh, tell us about that. Well, yeah, so, so I forget whether it's Bob Gulotti or, or, or Bob Moses on this, because I've done that a few different times, but both of them like the South African feel. 
So I would just come up with these originals, you know, just because I grew up in an era where that music was on the radio, you know, that kind of township jazz music. And Dollar Brand subsequently became Abdullah Ibrahim, was a contemporary of mine. And he sometimes would play drums with me for fun. You know, and he's an incredible pianist, as, as any jazz pianist would know. And he came from that reflecting and incorporating that music into a jazz context. And it, and people played on the street with penny whistle and a washboard, uh, you know, tea box bass. So I that 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 was the, some of my childhood experience, and and so that's what these pieces reflect. Echoes of that. Well, like I said, it's it's got kind of a funky, kind of a 1960s kind of feel to me. But very like Calypso also. If you go to the islands, it's like that, you know? And when I have been to the islands at times during a festival there, it'll feel like what happened in Cape Town. Okay, terrific. Last tune that we're going to do is kind of a standard that you did a nice feel on called Killer Joe. Wilson's tune. It's about a pimp, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the movie, but it, or, or, it was written for some media production, you know, about a pimp called Killer Joe, and I love it because it's it's such a mellow beginning with the two chords start out and just so measured, and then the bridge goes to a really harmonically quite different place. And Benny Golson, I heard him interviewed about this, when he originally submitted it to the publisher, and they would, they said, like, that's wrong. You know, is that a mistake? And he said he changed publishers. He was the wrong guy. <laughs> he was committed to that thing. And he writes many pieces that jazz musicians, as you started out to say, become standards because they got these little twists in them that make them just delicious to play on. And I, I think that's with Mike Pipeman, the trumpet player, I think I misspoke about in the other tune you mentioned about, and Stan Strickland. And it's Bob Gulati, I think, on drums on this uh-huh. particular one, who died just a year and a bit ago after the last perform- live performance we did just before the pandemic. So uh, uh, for those drummers who might be listening to the podcast who would certainly know Bob Gulati, who taught so many people and was such an inspiration to us, and who played with my bass player, John Lockwood, in the group with 
George Garzon the Fringe for 40 years. Mm. So we loved him and we miss him. You know, the song Killer Joe, uh, I, uh, there was a point in my life where I owned a record company. Uh, it was called 32 Jazz. And um, we didn't record very many new artists, but we put out what's called catalog. And one of the records that we put out was called Hit Jazz. And one of the songs on Hit Jazz was Killer Joe. So it had always been a favorite of mine for quite some time. And I really liked the version that you guys did. So Stanley, it's been a pleasure really to speak with you and to catch up with you. You know, one of the things that I ask my guests, this is a, a podcast called Follow Your Dream. And there are uh, many, many people out there that, unlike you, have been unable to follow their dream, or maybe they did, but they haven't succeeded yet at their dream. And I like to ask my guests like you, people that have been successful in life, what would be your advice to those dreamers out there? I would say this. If you are comparing yourself to your idols and feeling that their brilliance or their technical capacity or their vision is something that you just can't seem to be able to do. And I'm not talking about attainment financially, but, you know, as, it, as an artist. I think that that is a place to start from. It's the difference between practicing something where you're learning how to do it and imitation is very, very useful. But at a certain point... That's who they are. It's not who you are. And your and Miles was a good example. You talked earlier about Miles. Miles could not play trumpet like Clark Terry. He couldn't play trumpet like Dizzy Gillespie. Couldn't play as fast, couldn't play as high, couldn't play play in tune like they could. But what he could do, they couldn't do. Right. He was himself and he knew what he couldn't couldn't do and he put himself within that and and used his creativity to work with those materials because he allowed himself to be himself. And that's what I am still aspiring to do, to let myself be in that place of psychological safety with myself, that I can just let my fingers be on the keys if I'm playing keyboard and let them trust that it'll work and and that the, if i'm being with the people i'm working be playing with they will lift each other up feeling like that is why i play so i can do that whether or not i'm as good or as famous as x y and z but i can do it only as i can do it thank you so much for being on the podcast stanley here are the key takeaways from my interview with stanley sagoff don't compare yourself to your idols. Don't imitate. Be yourself. And now we're going to play again. You're going to hear again Cakewalk for Deborah, which is the song that we started with in the introduction. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.